Virginia, NPR. This is the time when we need to write and make art for the sake of healing our souls and enriching our communities. Welcome to Artemis Speaks. So just slow down in Welcome to Artemis Speaks. Today I'm delighted to have a guest writer who has been involved with Artemis Journal since its very beginning. Catherine Henkla is the author of over a dozen books in three genres, the most recent of which are the memoir Lost Places on Losing and Finding Home and poetry collections Galaxy and the Great Bear. Two collections are forthcoming from Mercer University Press, Exondu and Immortal Stuff. After a four-decade teaching career, Catherine has recently retired from her tenure home at Hollins University's Jackson Center for the Creative Writing. She plans to write, paint, and travel. As I mentioned, Catherine uh, has a very rich association with Artemis. Back in 1977, when we were running writers' workshops for abused women, I had solicited several good writers within the region to help run the writing workshops. And Dara Wire from University of Holland University, I believe, was her connection. And we published Catherine's story, Fishing, in 1977. I'm not sure that was the first time you were published. But it was delightful to go back and look at it recently. I have an archive of all the books we've published. Well, it's so nice to remember that, Jerry. And uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, great memories go back to um, one of my wonderful mentors, Dara Wire, and her association with Artemis, which made me aware of the magazine before the first issue came out. And um, I am positive she influenced me to submit to the magazine and to my delight uh, that story was published uh, interestingly uh, it had won a little prize at the Sherwood Anderson Festival but I but they I think they published it in their you know their uh, winning stories collection or whatever that was but it hadn't really been published and um, if it wasn't my first uh, publication in a real journal it was among the the very first because um, I was a, at first year at Hollands at that time 
Well, it's great to have you still around and to be involved in Artemis all these years. Uh, you grew up uh, in the natural environment of southern Appalachia. And of course, for those who've never been here, this is what I call the doorstep to heaven. It's just beautiful mountains and habitats that span the Blue Ridge Mountains to the Cumberland Plateau. It's one of the most biodiverse on Earth. And like Kathy's native home in Southwest Mountains of Virginia, she explores her journey through the local landscape and with incredible insights, always questing for answers and weaving an elegant philosophical collection of essays, prose, and novels. So I'm going to start out the interview uh, and ask you, how did growing up in Southwest uh, Mountains of Virginia influence you as a writer? It has had enormous impact on me as a writer, and I, I can say that uh, I probably don't have any piece of writing that's not uh, been influenced by it in some way or another. Um, but like any any child, uh, I didn't really know what had hit me. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, My family... Uh, moved to Richlands, Virginia, which is in Tazewell County, and it is way down in the tri-state area of the of, and true Appalachia part of uh, Virginia. And um, we had no uh, association with that area before my dad went down there to be a managing partner in a pharmacy. He was a pharmacist. And my mom grew up in Roanoke, my dad in Radford, and um and I was born there in Richlands. We left there in 1969, so I spent, you know, my whole childhood was pretty much encapsulated in that area. And then, uh, you know, years later, as I met other people and, you know, you find out where they're from and all that kind of stuff, you realize how impacted you have been by your own little unique experiences. And I also grew to appreciate and understand that uh, Southern Appalachia was very uh, separate and and uh, specific from Southern America. And this is something that, that uh, many people still don't realize, but more and more awareness has been raised in the last 40 years through the Appalachian Studies Association and, and through um, good conversations about Appalachia, which I think go all the way back to my childhood and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, where he pointed the finger at Appalachia, mostly southern Appalachia, um, as an underserved area, an underprivileged area. And this is the image that most people still hold of it, which is somewhat um, contradictory for people who actually live there and, and cherish the, uh, the rich, rich uh, folk culture and um, as you mentioned, the biodiversity of the area and also um, the definition of the area has, has been changing over time uh, as coal, which was so prominent in my childhood, it was uh, under every leaf and rock of the town in terms of why we were there at all. Um, and that economic engine, which is also a, an environmental degradation engine, uh, has has been gradually uh, shifting. So. Um, I, I can't say I've written anything without awareness of environmental uh, concerns, either through elegaic um, 
approach to the beauty of nature, which as a poet you have to realize that you appreciate it at the same time that it's being destroyed and, and that uh, creates a certain longing for something that we have but don't have. It's kind of uh, like so many things that I, I like to try to write about. It's contradictory in its, in its nature. Um, but I, I do think that raising awareness of uh, the specificity of this region in the greater region too. I mean, I started out in the tri-state area, which is very specifically defined as Appalachia, and then we we're kind of in the greater Appalachian area now. We're actually in a valley, not in the mountains, as you know. So yeah. I guess you're in the mountains up there in Floyd. But yes. Yeah. And you're in Roanoke. <laughs> yeah, yes. we're kind of at the. At, we're kind of where Appalachia starts in Roanoke, but we, we're not really highly associated with it for all kinds of political reasons. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's been a common thread through your books uh, about this culture, this Appalachian coal mining culture. I just dug out of my library uh, one of your earlier books, A Blue Moon in Poor Water, which explores a sleepy but troubled Appalachian town and the culture of coal mining through the eyes of a young woman, Dory Parks. And I was wondering how that was, you know, motivated your your sense that you were going to tell the story, what your motivation was. Um, I, it was real insight for me to be in a family whose father works in a coal mine. And there were all kinds of problems that arose from that. And uh, I thought it was a great book. It was an old, I had had it forever, and I don't know that I ever read it, and I just pulled it out. So thank you. So what was your uh, influence in making you decide to write about this coal mining family? Well, um, I want to say first that this is the beauty of literature. It sits on the shelf, and one day somebody pulls it off and just um, makes it alive again. That um, I love that about about books and people who have libraries that they've got all this sitting there, and that one day they're just going to connect with it in a, in a new and interesting way. The, um, the I think the book came about, and I wrote this before I was thirty, uh, so I was still puzzling over those uh, 11 years that I, I spent in this very um, interesting and, and, and troubled and and um, just place that was represented in all kinds of different ways. I mean, when I looked around at um, the uh, culture on TV, what you have is, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies and all this kind of... Um, ridiculous representation, a comedic representation of, uh, of people who might have lived up a holler and that kind of thing. And I knew that wasn't the story because I had gone to public school with uh, these folks. And although, you know, my life was dictated by what my family did and my social situation, I had a lot of um, empathy for, as a child with uh, other people and what, what they expressed. And it it jarred my soul in certain ways that I, I couldn't uh, comprehend except through writing this book through the eyes of someone's experience whose uh, life was not mine. And so instead of choosing Betty, the, the friend of Dory, 
whose uh, life was more like mine growing up, more privileged, I chose uh, Dory, who lived in a trailer park with her dad, who commuted to the, to the mines. Um, so I also represented a town like the one I grew up in, which was not a coal camp, but a, uh, a town adjacent to the mining area in which a lot of different people mixed. And um, so as a child, you, you don't recognize so many things about what is making the experience for other people. So I had to do a ton of research. I thought I knew what I was writing about. And in a in a uh, spiritual way, I did, but in a specific way, I didn't. And so I had to research um, what the mining would have been like for her father, David Parks, and and what the time frame I was writing about 1968, which, as we all know, was a, a very volatile time for um, America. And um, so, but I had to write about it also through the eyes of a child. So who would not have been aware of all the things <laughs> that we were aware of. So I um, I think I uh, chose, you know, Dory to sort of filter my own experience through, but also expand it and make it whole by uh, understanding the life that was around me more than my own. I understood my own life better than I understood what I was um, adjacent to. It was a great story, and, and it had a, uh, for me, it gave me a lot of insights into the politics of the unions and the coal mining and the miners and the owners, and, and there was a tragedy. I don't, I don't want to give it away, but it was a really insight into that culture. Of course, it's probably fading a bit now, but it's still very present in southwest Virginia. This has defined us for forever. Um, your most recent book, Lost Places on Losing and Finding Home, uh, is written in linked essays, and it's what home means to us. Can you tell us about that book? Well, it's kind of a, um odd book in that it uh, brings together field work and also research and some scholarly uh, thoughts about literature. And so it's kind of a um, hybrid book, unlike many so-called memoirs. It's it's not really all about me. So, right. <laughs> so I start with my own experience and I uh, with this questing all through the book of definitions of home and realizing that, you know, finally it's, it's the body uh, and then um, the planet and all, and all kinds of things that intersect with issues of belonging and, and um, how we domicile, you know, how we make home and break home for all kinds of reasons through our lives. It's like we're domestic animals that as soon as we get something perfect, we leave it. And this <laughs> this is mm-hmm. kind of a, um, a theme that ha- has run through so, so many people's lives that, you, you know, you move and you think it's so easy to move and then you find yourself either kind of a part of a place or you find yourself on the outside trying to figure out how to be part of things that you know you seem um, to be at odds with and that can happen in an instant when somebody says something and you feel suddenly like an outsider so I'm just really interested in all these questions about how how we 
see our planet home and our body home. And um, I try to interweave those those things. And I think uh, growing up in Virginia was such a contradictory experience as well that um, it may have set me up for being, as well as growing up in Appalachia did, to be in something but not really part of it and kind of be from a place that that people didn't understand very well and and it sets up that urgency around uh talking to people you know trying to connect taking your experience and make putting it in a uh a form that that people can find themselves in it and one of the lovely things about this latest book is how it has jogged other people's connection to themselves and their own lives and they have told me uh, about certain parts that were meaningful to them. So it's not an easy book to read, I have to say. It's not as easy <laughs> a read as uh, Blue Moon and Poor Water. <laughs> well, I, I see a connection, snakes, and I relate to snakes. I uh, went into my barn last week, and there was a big black snake. And Good I sign. Have, That's a good sign. Yeah, yeah. yeah we want them. <laughs> and and I've, I've also reached in a toolbox and grabbed a snake one time. So you, you talk about that. And then there were snakes, uh, cobra, in your Pour Water novel as well. It's, it's really a great book. Uh, you take us in that uh, book on a historical tour of Thomas Jefferson's house, Monticello, a place that enchanted and mesmerized uh, you at an early age. And it was not... Um, hard to understand well it was hard to idealize Jefferson here in Virginia he's you know considered our uh, you know he's our, our our father of the state and uh, his majestic home but you know he had slaves uh, all the way till he died and you know with his mistress Sally Hemings and then there was the slave graveyard that you looked at so you look at several ideas of what home means i think uh jefferson is such a a great uh place to start with the contradictory nature of our state and our in our you know our whole um history here in this in this country but as a as a child you're if you grew up in virginia you're taken to monticello as a sort of um altar you know on the founding of the founding fathers and over time that altar was somewhat um marred you know i was not lighting candles to the founding fathers anymore as as the history became more um uh uncovered and it and and i have to say it was hidden from us uh, in the public schools the books we read everything was sort of i will say whitewashed um and it erased uh, the history that we need to know and that we're still reckoning with. And I, I don't think we'll ever make peace with it, but we have to bring it all into the light. You also looked at Frank Lloyd Wright's sense of home and Gotti's sense of what he did and couldn't pull off at the end of his life. Yeah, it's so interesting to kind of think about these um, biography homes and Jefferson had a couple of them that were quite different from each other, Monticello, and then there, there was Poplar Forest, which was his kind of secret hideaway that he experienced kind of a sort of married life with Sally Hemings there, um, which influenced him 
to lobby publicly against the slave trade and then privately still own slaves and and it it's um it's heartbreaking to to realize what our um country is really built on and i think a lot of people just don't want to look at it and um i but i think there's a a way in which we all have to understand our part in it and uh, this is my attempt to reckon with it through these biography homes and, and thinking about how people pour themselves into this expression of uh, bricks and mortar that, that outlasts them. For Gaudi, uh, I've been to the Sagrada Familia, and um, of course it was unfinished in his lifetime. And, and um, it's true of uh, of Jefferson, too, that Monticello was built over many decades. And at one point, one of his children fell through the floor because it was <laughs> <laughs> it was boarded up and the floor wasn't finished. And it, the, it started falling apart before it was finished. And, and I thought that was a wonderful metaphor as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, books also serve as homes to you. You wrote in the book... Quote, sometimes I'm most at home in books, writing, or reading. I finish one, fold my teepee, and start another. Absolutely. So wherever you are, you're home because of your writing and your books, right? And I, I, I think you know this very well. Jerry is a great reader, great reader that you are, and a um, supporter of writers as well. That um, we do live in live in our books and live hope to live on in our books and any reader's experience is to change their own habitat through the book they're reading and to expand their lives in ways that they can't predict it's a great escape especially during the pandemic when we're not traveling as much as we used to uh, we're storytellers and you've been one of the best throughout artemis's history and we follow your stories, and it's a great insight into where you are and where you're going. So let's talk about the plans for your future. Now that you're retired, you had a very active academic career running the writing workshop at Jackson Center in Holland University. So what are your plans? I um, cherish all the students I've had so much. I'm in touch with so many of them. I'm still writing letters of recommendation this <laughs> this fall. Uh, so I haven't been severed from that long enough to really think about that, but I'm excited to have more time to put into my own projects. Um, the writing and the painting that have sustained me over the years are still a huge part of my life and my plans uh, for the future. You mentioned the two books that are coming out, Not Xanadu, in uh, the spring of uh, 2022, and then um, Immortal Stuff, which is a collection of prose poems coming out the following year. So I have these books coming out, and there are things to do for those um, as, as they emerge, and I'm really trying to get my feet under me after launching myself out west for a trip to go some of my favorite places we didn't talk about Chaco Canyon but there's a big essay about that in Lost Places and I was there recently trying to uh, think about think about that again and just connect to it um, so you've been there before oh so many you, times so you've gone back yes many and New times. Mexico is my home state that in southwest Texas but 
I never made it to Chaco Canyon. Well, there's, it's still there, and now mm-hmm. it's a World Heritage Site, and you really ought to go. Yeah, I know. It's, it's fantastic. I love that. And Yeah, okay. strangely, the uh, repository of all things Chaco is housed on, at, at the computers at UVA because there was an archaeologist there who got involved in what they call the Chaco Project. And so there's a huge repository of information about Chaco. Where can we find that? It's online. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just go to the Chaco Project, and you'll uh-huh. you'll end up d- taking a deep dive into a computer at UVA. <laughs> I love the Southwest, but I'm very distressed about the drought and, and water and what's going on. And it's a big environmental concern because it's throughout the Earth planet, and we're seeing major changes out there. Um, well... Do you have any advice for first-time writers, people trying to jump into this world? Well, um, my best advice is to put your butt in the chair and uh, start scribbling. And when you have some things, connect with the writer's group and some people who will give you some honest feedback and who are also scribbling along. I think it's great to have peers that you trade things with, but sometimes we get too comfortable with that. So you really need to find a mentor, a teacher, and uh, go from there. Fantastic. Well, we're going to conclude this interview with uh, you, Catherine, reading a piece that we're going to publish in next year's journal, Artemis 2022. And the name of it is Puma. So before you read it, just tell us what inspired you to write Puma. Well, as you'll hear in the piece, um, well, I mentioned family forms and an elusive puma. And as I was walking the Greenway yesterday and I knew this interview was coming up, I was thinking, you know what? I think I have never heard about anybody's family that had a family farm unless they had a bunch of family secrets that kind of went with it. I put those two things together and also the elusive uh, puma that uh, is sort of like our shadow selves we can hunt it down the way the hunters do in, in the poem, but it's much better to embrace it. Lovely. So this is Puma, with uh, thanks to Artemis for picking it up for their next journal. At the family farm, you heard it shriek in the night. Numinous, by definition, it slunk the underbrush of unscythed hayfields, the feral perimeters of an unfenced boundary. Limestone caves cored the land beneath our view, and occasionally you'd come upon from some scat, check your guidebook, given pause. Your mother sprang things on you from the vault of inappropriate family history. Offhandedly, she thrust upon you a vat of scalding water you had to balance just so. Then there was that time some hunters claimed They laid sights on the black velvet face of a creature, Puma Concular Cougar, whose tail unburdened them of doubt, yet their shots missed. For me, the high rim of a ravine above a creek was where it stalked above the road above my car as headlights illumined a darkness not of the tawny lion, an absence pointing to the thing. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. It's been a delight 
speaking with you and, and thinking about some of the back history, I should say, her story. And, uh, you know, if you uh, are interested in reading more of Catherine's books, she has a website. Can you tell us your website? Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. It's been a pleasure. I wish we could just talk another 10 hours, but it, 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 would, it, would, <laughs> be, it would be a long podcast. We'll continue it <laughs> off, offline. Yeah, okay. Uh, so my website is www.katherinehankla.com, and uh, you can find some of my books at Book No Further downtown in Roanoke, which is wonderful, and uh, the book Jerry mentioned, A Blue Moon in Poor Water, is still available as a paperback through University of Virginia Press. And also, Dolores Fest has some first editions down there at Book No Further. In Lost Places, uh, she's got copies of that, too. So I love the support. Yes, small her, bookstore. Um, her bookstore down there. Indie bookstores. we got to support them. Yep. In fact, I'm going there after this. Yeah, spell your name, please, for your website so people can... Okay, it's uh, www.cathrynhankla.com. Perfect. Thanks again for joining us. It's been a real joy to speak with you. Thank you, Jerry. And I thank my audience for joining us today as I record from Final Track Studio with my co-producer, Skip Brown, the magician, makes it happen. If you're interested, all of our podcasts are archived on the Artemis website, which is www.artemisjournal.org slash podcast. We have, what, 22 so far. Amazing. I'm Jerry Rogers, and until next time, read, write, create, and discover the world around you. It'll be good for your soul. You've been listening to Artemis Speaks. Artemis is a charitable organization now 43 years old and has evolved to be all-inclusive, a journal with essays, poetry, and art. 10% of the journal's sales are donated to a women's shelter in southwest Virginia. If you're interested in learning more, artemisjournal.org. You can mail us directly P.O. Box 505, Floyd, Virginia, 24091. The closing music and the opening music you're listening to is Jordan Harmon. And the song is Just Slow Down, a very appropriate comment for the times that we're in. If you want to read, you have to slow down. Artemis Speaks, the podcast, is recorded twice monthly at Final Track Studios in Roanoke, Virginia. All rights reserved and is co-produced by Jerry Rogers and Skip Brown. He loves so much. Can anybody tell me? It became so cool We got everybody walking around Trying to do the same thing That everybody else they do And you know Oh yes you know You gotta be yourself 
yourself is all you got and all you got is what you need look in the mirror see it clearer the answer staring at you and so just slow down in life because you can't buy Just slow down. 